everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This week, we're going to start a multi-part series about a wrongful conviction case that several UK listeners have asked me to cover. At this point, my plan is to share some of the details about the case and not necessarily make this a full-on deep-dive season, but we'll see how that goes. We're going to do whatever we can to help, at the very least, drum up some support and awareness about the case. From what I've read so far, the case is fascinating and it appears to have been a terrible injustice. The case is the murder of Jody Jones and the apparent wrongful conviction of then 14-year-old Luke Mitchell. But before I start laying out the basic facts of Luke's case, I first want to quickly touch on something that I think as hard as I try, I just can't keep quiet about. And that's the final episode of the prosecutor's analysis of the Anand Syed case. As most of you know, I'm doing an episode-by-episode deep-dive breakdown of their coverage on Patreon, where we're really getting into the weeds about all of this stuff, every detail, every case file, anything they got wrong, anything they got right. In that series, I'm going to be digging super deep into the final theories that they presented, but here I just want to take a few minutes and respond to the social media uproar about their conclusions, since it's happening right now. Now, if you have no interest in the Anand Syed case or you're just sick of hearing about it, feel free to skip ahead to the ad break and you don't need to listen to any of this. But if you do care and you did listen to their conclusions or you've seen social media filled with things that are making your blood boil and you want to understand what's going on, here are my thoughts. So it's no surprise that Brett and Alice concluded that Adnan is guilty of murdering Hay. And that was pretty apparent from the first episode. In their final episode, they shared their final theories, which were presented very much like the closing arguments of a trial, which isn't surprising considering the fact that they are, in fact, working prosecutors. First things first, I would hate to be a defendant with Alice prosecuting my case. She was truly masterful in her closing argument. I suspect that she is very, very good at her job. If you didn't know the details about the case or just worked off only the information that they provided to you, You would not only walk away believing that Adnan is guilty, but you would actually walk away despising him as a human being. You've all heard me say season after season that trials are won and lost in the closing arguments, and this is a great example of how that happens. She was sharp, concise, and really did a good job of drawing out emotions from the audience. Hence, the social media outrage. 
If their goal, as I speculated in my first episode, was to present this case as prosecutors attempting to persuade the jury of public opinion to land on their conclusion of guilt, they nailed it. But, in my opinion, they didn't prove anything. This is what I'd like for you to do. If you're still listening right now, I'm going to assume that you truly care about this case, and also that you're at least interested in what Brett and Alice had to say. So, I want to lay a little groundwork for you, and then I would love it if you would go listen to their part 14 of the series. Even if you've already heard it, listen again and be listening for the things that I'm about to mention. First things first. These theories are built off of the foundation that Brett and Alice built throughout the course of their series. I'm not going to get into all those details right now. That's what I'm going to be breaking down on the Patreon bonus series. But I'll say this. The building blocks of their case are flawed. Fatally flawed. When you spend 13 episodes building a case based on incorrect times, leaving out critical elements of evidence, and breezing past major flaws in the timeline, you can pretty much land on any conclusion that you want to. Imagine if I spent weeks breaking down the case and left out the fact that Jay told the police what happened. I only presented the cell phone data, Jen's testimony, and the I'm going to kill note. If that was the foundation that I'd built, I could easily convince you in closing that not only is Adnan innocent, but that the case against him was absolutely ridiculous. That's what happened here, and that's why I'm taking the time to put together the bonus series. I just want everyone to have all the facts, not just the convenient ones. And This really matters to me that the correct information is out there, because this is not a dead or a cold case. Adnan is out fighting for his freedom right now. And the foundation that is the basis for the theories that Brett and Alice presented is flawed, in my opinion. It's missing huge, important pieces. So to begin with, just know that. Their theories slash closing arguments are not based on the case file. They're based on only the information that they shared with you and their analysis of that information. I also want to be clear that I don't actually have a problem with Brett and Alice doing this. They're prosecutors. They presented the case like prosecutors. And if you're listening to a podcast titled The Prosecutors, this is exactly what you should expect to hear. In real life, no prosecutor or defense attorney is ever going to intentionally show you evidence that conflicts with their theory of the case. That's for the other side to do. Their job is to convince you that their position is the correct one. But in this podcast format, there is no other side. There is no defense to cross-examine or to challenge the things that they are saying. So that's thing one. Now thing two is really kind of just an extension of thing one. All about building that foundation for this closing. If you listen, you'll note that they share the details of one of the cases that were overturned because of Ritz and McGillivary's misconduct. Everything that they are saying and doing is very intentional. I told you guys in episode one of my series about their series that to take a position that these two detectives wouldn't use drug charges to leverage or coerce someone into giving false statements in order to obtain a conviction is just cognitive dissonance. And the reason I say that, and the reason I told you that in that episode, is that these guys have been caught cheating on four different occasions. Caught. Caught red-handed, and the convictions overturned. Four of the cases. Remember that. They've been caught four times that resulted in exonerations. Brett and Alice addressed this in their final conclusions. They chose one of the four cases to share the details. 
And it's a bad one. Malcolm Bryant's case. In that case, the level of misconduct is outrageous, but it also happens to be the only one of the four cases where there wasn't direct witness statement coercion. There was some coercion, but not really synonymous to what they did with Jay Wilds. They then say, yeah, that's really bad, but to say that rises to the level of what they call a conspiracy theory in Adnan's case is ridiculous. The effect is that you're supposed to be left with a feeling that it's not reasonable to believe that Ritz and McGillivary would use Jay to create a false story out of whole cloth. But what I want you to take note of is that they didn't even mention the other three cases. In all three of those cases, they did precisely what I and many others believe they did to Jay. One example is they had a woman who was doing drugs in her apartment make up an entire story about how she directly witnessed a murder out of her apartment window and identified the killer, which resulted in that man serving years in prison for something he had nothing to do with. The problem is that her apartment doesn't face the street where the murder happened. And I don't mean like there was an obstructed view. I'm talking about like her window faces the west side of the building and the murder happened on the north side of the building. It was impossible for her to have a view of the murder. It was a completely made-up story that thankfully she finally admitted to later. The point is that you should take note of the fact that this case wasn't mentioned when the prosecutors were convincing you that it's crazy to think that Ritz and McGillivary would do something exactly like this. The closing theories are built on a faulty foundation. Now, let's move on to thing three. Brett went first with his closing, so I'll start with him. Listen to his final theory and see if you notice the part of the case that he doesn't talk about at all. Note that he makes zero mention of any of the evidence of what Adnan was doing after school. He doesn't counter it. He just acts as though that time period doesn't even exist. There are certainly places where an argument can be made that the defense theory about something can be logically refuted. And in those instances, he addresses them. But Brett himself concluded in an earlier episode that Adnan went to track practice that day. But there's a major problem with the timeline if he goes to track practice. So in his final theory, you never hear a word about track practice. You never hear a word about Coach Sai or the guidance counselor's office. You don't hear about Debbie Warren or Inez Butler. As though those things just don't exist. He does mention Asia in the library because he's able to navigate those elements. But where there are major conflicts, he just coasts right on by. So be listening for that. If you were a juror, don't you think it would be fair? Would you expect that the prosecutor would explain how track practice fits into all of this? He never does. And then we have the big conflict. Jay, who by all accounts is a walking conflict all by himself. and Jen and Jay and Jen together, and Jay and Jen and the cell phone evidence together. Now I'm going to break down everything on this topic in the bonus series, and Colin Miller addressed some of it in a tweet thread earlier this week. But for now, just know this. This final theory deals with Jay and Jen's conflicting stories by simply saying that there is a, quote, basic story that lines up Jay and Jen's statements in the cell phone pings. Now I'm sorry. But aside from the year I spent studying this case back in 2015 and 2016, I've also spent the last few weeks lining up every element on a timeline, and I can tell you there is no basic story. 
There's literally not. What I mean is that there is not one single possible timeline that can be put together between those three elements without a major conflict that disproves the theory. And that's the approach I'm taking, trying to come up with a timeline for guilt that actually fits all the evidence. It's impossible. Every time I think I've got one, one of the calls on the call log makes it impossible. Or I find a spot how maybe it could have worked based on the phone records, except everything Jay and Jen says conflicts with that. It just doesn't work. Brett uses the phrase cop-out later in the episode, which I'm going to get to here in a second, but I'll throw back the same phrase. If you want to convince me that Adnan did this, then tell me how. Show me a timeline that is actually possible. To just say, there's a basic story that works, with all due respect, that, sir, is a cop-out. And lastly, let's talk about the conclusion of the episode. Brett says that anyone who says that Adnan didn't get a fair trial is, quote, copping out. He goes on and on about how the trial absolutely was fair. But know this. Adnan did not get a fair trial. Period. Whether you believe he's innocent or you believe he's guilty, I believe he's innocent, factually innocent. But there's no question that he did not get a fair trial. That's actually not even up for debate. A judge ruled that Adnan did not get a fair trial and overturned his conviction because he didn't get a fair trial. Now, if memory serves, and I'll dig into these details later in the bonus series, but I believe that ruling was even appealed up to a higher court, and that panel of judges also ruled that he did not get a fair trial, and they upheld the ruling that the conviction be overturned. Then it was appealed up again to the Maryland Supreme Court. And that panel of judges overturned that ruling and they reinstated the conviction. But even in that ruling, the vote was two to one. So there's another judge at the Maryland Supreme Court that still concluded that the conviction should remain vacated. But yes, we did end up with two judges who voted to reinstate the conviction. But the reason wasn't because he received a fair trial. The conviction was reinstated because of a procedural error. They agreed that Adnan did not receive a fair trial due to Gutierrez's failures regarding the cell phone data. The problem was that Adnan's original post-conviction attorney didn't raise the issue on an earlier appeal, so it was a time-barred argument. So no one, no judge, not even all the way up to the Maryland Supreme Court, has ruled that Adnan got a fair trial. So I'll say this, it's not a cop-out, it's case law. Anand Syed did not receive a fair trial. That fact has been argued all the way up to the Maryland Supreme Court, and it is now a matter of law. And now let me quickly address Alice's closing argument. As I stated earlier, it was brilliant, masterful in fact, but this is what I want you to listen for. What actual evidence or details did she include in that speech? What supporting evidence did she give for literally anything she said? I didn't hear any. I heard a really good, passionate speech, but if you listen closely, there's zero substance behind it. And that's not an insult. I said earlier and I meant it. I would never want to be battling Alice in a courtroom. She is incredibly persuasive and that is her job. 
I'm just asking you to be a thoughtful juror. Look beyond the delivery and tell me what the basis is for what she's selling you. The fact is, all she did is tell a completely made-up story in a very passionate way. But she cited no evidence to back any of it up. It's literally just her opinion. And that, my friends, is already more than I planned on talking about the episode today, so I'm going to stop here. But just to summarize, I think that you should go listen to that episode of the Prosecutor's Podcast, if you care. And know that these stories are not based on the entirety of the case file. They're based on the parts of the case file that they chose to share with you in their own analysis of those elements. Know that there are three other cases involving these detectives that would destroy the point that they're making about conspiracy. I want you to listen for any mention of the critical time from 2.45 p.m. to 4 p.m. Listen for how track practice fits into the narrative. Note that all of the problems with Jay's stories, Jen's stories, and how they line up with the cell phone pings are simply summarized as, quote, a basic story emerges. Ask yourself what the basic story is and if they ever proved it to you. And remember that it is a matter of law that Anand Syed did not receive a fair trial. You're not copping out if you believe that. You're simply reading the opinion of the judges that ruled on the case. And lastly, listen closely for any evidence or even a timeline in Alice's closing argument. And think back to their coverage if you listen to it and try to cite the evidence or sources that back up her theory. And with that, happy listening. I'm going to take a quick break here, then I'm going to give you the basics of the Luke Mitchell case. I'm super excited to dig into this one. We'll get back to it right after the break. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are, leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals. 
with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Okay, I'm going to keep this short and sweet today. I've spent every waking minute the last two days learning about this case, and I've learned a couple things. Number one, the case is fascinating, and at least on its surface, it does look like a wrongful conviction. And number two, there are lots of twists and turns in this one, and I need to fully research each element of the case before presenting it. Based on what I've learned so far, I'm thinking this will probably be a five or a six part series. I plan to dive into the victim, Jody Jones, the murder search and discovery, the case against Luke Mitchell, the flaws in the state's case, and then the alternate suspects, which looks like it'll take at least two episodes to cover. So that's the plan, but we're going to see where things go. We'll start this series next week. Today, I just want to very briefly give you a 30,000-foot view of the case. As I mentioned in the intro, this case takes us across the pond to the land of my maternal ancestors, Scotland. Fun fact, for any of you that don't know, my mom's side of the family are Robertsons and hail from Scotland. I've always been fascinated with the Scottish history, so of course when this one landed in my inbox, I couldn't help but dive into it. I also want to give a shout out to longtime listener Matt Elliott. Matt has been asking me to cover this case for years. And so far, has been a great resource for me to get information and case material. also want to shout out Kayla Wren. Kayla was part of the group that took me to the UK in 2018 for the West Memphis 3 speaking tour. When they heard I was looking for subjects to cover between full seasons, they reached out and also suggested Luke's case. I want to thank both of you for opening my eyes to this one. It looks like you're absolutely right and a horrible injustice has occurred here. So here are the basics of the case. Jody Jones' murder occurred on June 30th, 2003, so it's been just over 20 years now. Jody was 14 years old and living with her mother and siblings in the small, sleepy town of Dalkeith. Jody was dating a 14-year-old boy named Luke Mitchell at the time. On the afternoon of the 30th, at around 5 p.m., Jody left her house on foot, and it's believed that she was headed to go see Luke. A few hours later, Jody's family became concerned that they hadn't heard from her. Her friends and family started searching, and Luke joined the search with his dog because his dog was being trained for tracking. The search followed the route that Jody would have taken to get to Mitchell's house, which included a trail through a wooded area. During the search, at around 10.30 p.m., Luke's dog was drawn to a large stone wall in the woods. The dog was alerting to a spot where a chunk was missing from the top of the wall, like a V-shaped notch, something you could crawl through. With Jody's family right there, Luke was the first to jump over the wall where the dog was indicating. And when he got to the other side, he found something absolutely horrific. He found Jody's body. The scene was a massacre. Jody had been stabbed and slashed over and over again. There was blood everywhere. I've heard the injuries described as Jody being nearly decapitated. Her body was partially undressed, and an autopsy later revealed that there were also signs of strangulation. Nearby the body, a used condom containing what was described as, quote, fresh semen was also discovered. Luke was immediately targeted as a suspect. There seems to have been two reasons for that. First, because it was believed that it was too easy for him to find Jody's body. The prosecution's theory was that he must have already known where her body was located, 
because he was the one who killed her. And the other reason that Luke was targeted, and this is where we get those West Memphis 3 vibes, was because of his interests. He was obsessed with Marilyn Manson and had notebooks full of what have been described as satanic doodlings, papers with 666 and the word Satan drawn on them. Luke was quickly framed by the media as suspect number one, a Satan worshiper who was known to carry a knife. Although it took the police 10 months to arrest Luke, he was convicted in the court of public opinion almost immediately. His school unsuccessfully attempted to prevent him from attending after the murder, and Jody's family didn't allow him to attend the funeral. Luke's mother provided an alibi for him, but it wasn't believed by the police. Now, eventually, he and his mother both volunteered to take polygraphed and both passed without any indications of deception, but that's a story for another episode. Luke was questioned right away, and his house was searched by police. No blood was found in the house or on any of his clothes or on his body. He had no scratches or marks on him, and it was obvious that he had not showered because there was still dirt under his fingernails and his hair was dirty. In fact, there was zero forensic evidence found that linked Jody to Luke. There was also no forensic evidence linking him to her body. There was male DNA found on a blood stain on Jody's shirt, but it didn't match Luke's. And a full profile was also obtained from the used condom, which also didn't match Luke. Considering the graphic nature of this murder, it seems absolutely absurd that the killer would not have left his DNA on Jody's body, and it seems pretty obvious the killer would have been covered in Jody's blood. But police weren't deterred by the lack of forensic evidence. Eventually, the police found a witness who said that she saw a couple that resembled Jody and Luke near the entrance to the trail where Jody's body was later found at around the time she went missing. She then identified Luke Mitchell as the boy that she saw along with Jody. Now this cut the legs out from underneath Luke's alibi. He said that he hadn't seen Jody on the day that she was killed, but the police now had a witness who seemed to prove otherwise. So about 10 months later, on April 14th of 2004, Luke was arrested for Jody's murder. The trial occurred in 2005. The state's case was entirely circumstantial. Luke was the first to find the body. He had knives. He was obsessed with Marilyn Manson, who was obsessed with the murder of Elizabeth Short, known as the Black Dahlia. The prosecution tried to show similarities between Short's murder and Jody's murder. And of course, there's the witness who told police that she saw a young couple resembling Jody and Luke at the entrance to the wooded area at around 4.50 p.m. on the day of the murders. Now, if you think that seems like kind of a shaky case, it actually got worse. The witness, who by the way was driving at 30 miles per hour and quite a distance away from the boy she identified as Luke, at trial failed to identify him in front of the jury. She was asked by the prosecution if the boy that she saw was in the courtroom that day, and there's Luke standing a few feet in front of her, and she said no. So now you have no eyewitness and no forensic evidence linking Luke to the murder, and you have two other viable male DNA samples from the crime scene. But you also have a devil-worshipping teenager that liked knives. It took the jury just one day to come up with a verdict, and on January 11, 2005, Luke Mitchell was convicted and sentenced to a minimum of 20 years in prison. 
He was 14 at the time of the murder and 16 years old on the day he was convicted. To this day, Luke staunchly maintains his innocence. And the Scottish criminal justice system doesn't work like it does here in America, where we lock people up and throw away the key. Considering the fact that Luke was only 14 years old, that's middle school age if you're doing the math, all he has to do is admit that he killed Jody and he would be basically guaranteed parole. He could go home, but Luke refuses to confess to a crime that he didn't commit. I know that was short, but I just want to give you an overview so I can start working on the important details of the case. So I'm going to leave you today with this short clip from Luke himself. This is from an interview he gave to the producers of the YouTube documentary, Murder in a Small Town. They've taken everything from me. My friends, my family, my home, my childhood, my adolescence, my early adult years. But they will not bully a false admission of guilt out of me. As long as I can get up every morning and look myself in the mirror and hold my head up high, I'll get through this. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production. All music for the show is created and composed by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. The font you see on all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com Design Created manages and maintains our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our volunteer transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Courtney Wimberly, Erica Cantor, Melissa Cardenas, Kay Wood-Yomnick, and Danielle Rohr. And as always, thank you to all of you for your engagement and your support. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that in a number of ways. The number one way for you to support our work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. If you join our Patreon, not only will you be financially supporting our work, but you'll also get something for your pledge. For just $5 per month, you'll get all episodes ad-free and also a video version of the Friday follow-ups that include an hour-long pre-show chat exclusive to our patrons. Other levels will get you a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host a Friday follow-up episode. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice to sign up. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review doesn't cost you a penny and it goes a long way towards making the show more visible if you have a case that you'd like us to consider covering you can submit your cases on our website truthandjusticepod.com just click on the case submission button and fill out the form and the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations you can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com you can like our facebook page follow us on instagram or join in on the conversation on the truth and justice podcast fans page for all of you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod, and I can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch, but as for now, I'm signing off. 
I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.